We'll look at verses 17 through 26 this morning, and the text is printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. John has written his gospel in a way that builds up anticipation for what he calls the hour. Actually, he doesn't call it the hour. He's, he's quoting Jesus, who calls it the hour. And there's this anticipation for it. It's a bit suspenseful. It's probably not the same kind of expense, uh, suspense you would expect from something like a horror movie. Uh, but, uh, but it is a bit suspenseful. There might be some tension here, some sense of foreboding the way that Jesus has talked about the hour, the coming hour. What is this hour? What's going to happen? Is it good? Is it scary? Should we try to avoid it? Can it be avoided? <laughs> this hour is looming. Nine times the gospel refers to the hour. The first three times the emphasis is the hour has not yet come. We're still looking forward to it. It isn't quite here yet. It's coming, but not yet. That's the first three times in this gospel. But our passage contains the fourth reference, and a change has occurred. Something new is starting to happen. The hour has come, sort of like we've heard the last ratcheting click on the roller coaster as it reaches the top of the track. The last one we've heard, the, the curtain's coming up on the second act of the gospel here. It's almost the, almost the second half of the gospel is this now. Each of the gospel writers slows down to expand on Jesus' last week of life, his uh, time in Jerusalem there at the end. Um, each of the gospels slows down to look at that, but especially John. And the way that commentators have understood his gospel, sort of in those two main parts, maybe first half, second half, uh, is historically they've, they've understood the first part to be the book of signs, and that's the seven signs Jesus performed that he said indicate who he is and point to his glory. The hour's coming all through that first book, the book of signs, as he's working these miracles. A lot of people might think that the, the signs he performed, the miracles, that's the really important stuff. That's the really big stuff. When you think of Jesus, he was, able, he was a wonder worker, right? He was able to do some pretty amazing stuff, and that's great, but he said those were all signs pointing to his glory, and now the hour has come for that. Now it's the book of glory, the hour has come, not literally, not quite yet, not literally. Uh, it's not the last 60 minutes of his life yet that we're looking at here, but figuratively, it's, it's like saying that his time has come. The time has come. It's the hour of atonement, the time of salvation. It's Jesus' great sacrifice. It's Jesus' death. It's Jesus' glory. What triggered it? What triggered this? And how does Jesus talk about it? That's what we see in our passage this morning. What kind of good news is it that this is what everything's building up to? This kind of time, this kind of moment, the time of Jesus' death. What kind of good news are we talking about? If that's what everybody's excited about, right, in the gospel, uh, what kind of good news is it that, that the buildup leads to this? What does it all mean, this hour? That's what we'll talk about this morning. Give you 30 seconds more of suspense before we get into the scripture. Let's read. Uh, let's pray first, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we do need your help as we consider your word this morning. Your spirit is absolutely necessary if people like us are going to be able to understand your word and not just understand it, but accept it. 
and uh, even more if we're going to be changed by it into the likeness of Christ. That is what we want to some degree or other, it is what you have said is good. So we pray that you would have your way with us now as we consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him, talking about his um, entry into Jerusalem that we talked about last week, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so a big transition is taking place in the gospel, in the account of Jesus' life. The hour has come, it's time. Why? We have some indicators before, we've talked about it plenty, uh, that the hour means his death. It's the hour of his sacrifice um, for us. But, but why? Why now? What triggered it? In an overarching sense, in a really general sense, I think we could say, uh, it's all been orchestrated by God. Everything has been orchestrated by God according to his ultimate plan. Romans 5 says, at the right time Christ died. Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1 use language of the fullness of time. The plan of God was exercised in the fullness of time. God worked all the events of history up to this specific moment, and now conditions were just right for launch. But what are the conditions? Why now, right? When God orchestrates all of this so that conditions are just right and it's the fullness of time, what does that mean? What does it look like? Why now? What, what was it about this very moment that made it the hour? It's, it's the fact that all eyes were on Jesus. All eyes were on him. Everybody was confused, but their attention had been captured. Last week, we, under, uh, we, we saw that no one understood Jesus. Everybody had the wrong expectations for him. The nature of his kingship it escaped them all. Even his closest friends, it said his disciples, that even they didn't understand what was going on <clears throat> here. But, but Jesus has become a figure who cannot be ignored. Right? You've got the city of Jerusalem packed for the Passover. And some estimates put that number around 2 million people. All the Jews from the land coming, coming up to, to worship during this feast and here are these huge crowds following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel about Jesus and, and welcoming Jesus as a king, right? 
He's a figure who cannot be ignored. The whole city was stirred up by his presence because they had heard that he had done this sign, it says, this thing with raising Lazarus from the dead. They didn't understand the significance of the sign. They didn't understand the thing that the sign was pointing to, right? They just thought, hey, that's really cool. Somebody can raise people from the dead. Something interesting must be happening here. Um, But they didn't understand. That's very important to remember, actually, that they didn't understand. Here's all these people who cannot ignore Jesus, who didn't understand really who he was or why he came. Just because you can't ignore Jesus in this world, just because so many people, especially in our culture, can't ignore Jesus, They've heard about Jesus. They've heard something. If they're confronted with the church all the time, the reality of it, they've heard about him. They've heard about what he's done. Doesn't mean that everybody should assume they've understood him. You may have heard about him all your life and not understood him. That's that's okay. That's normal. But here, all the people of Israel are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and the spotlight's on him. Spotlight's on Jesus. And it says in verse 19 that the, the serious religious, um, the, the religious people who were very serious about their religion, the Pharisees, right, uh, they said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world's gone after him. They've been plotting, they've been scheming, they've been trying to remove Jesus from the public eye, and it isn't working, right? And, uh, and it sounds like they're sort of blaming each other for that. <clears throat> they don't like the fact that Jesus is the center of attention. They're doing everything they can to remove him from the spotlight, kind of like modern-day atheists go around talking about God all the time, trying to remove God from the spotlight, right? But they just can't help. They're compelled to talk about God all the time. They can't get attention off of him even by trying. Um, it's kind of like that. They, they might be using hyperbolic language, right? The world has gone after him. They're seeing their city in some way going after Jesus. It's probably hyperbolic language, but uh, but John actually sees the irony in it because, in fact, well, here comes the world. Here they come in the next verse. The nations, the Gentiles, the Greeks. So when it says the Greeks, that's sort of slang for everybody who's not a Jew, right? The Greeks are looking for Jesus. Among them, those, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are not just foreigners. They're foreigners who are interested in Judaism. They're interested in, in the God of Israel. Here we should remember the theme from earlier in John's Gospel, from the very beginning of John's Gospel. Jesus came to his own. He came to Israel. He came to his own people, people who had been in, in some way prepared for this moment He came to those who were his own, but his own did not receive him. But some did receive him. That's what John has already said. If not his own, if not Israel, if not the historic people of God, this this nation that he's been working with for hundreds of years, well, who then? Who's receiving Jesus? Others. Others. From the beginning of the scriptures, God chose his special people, Israel. This is why he had set them up. This is why he had set them apart and made them a big deal. He chose his special people, Israel, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, to be a blessing to others, to all the nations. That's explicit in Genesis as God is first addressing Abraham. 
He set them up to be a priestly nation among all the nations, to be the one nation that actually knows God and that that would be good for all the others. To bring divine reconciliation to the other nations, to be concerned with the Gentiles' relationship to God. God's people were supposed to mediate on behalf of the others out there, whoever they are, whatever nation, others. God's people are supposed to mediate on their behalf. The whole world is out of fellowship with God, and God has revealed himself to this this one nation, this new version of humanity, really is what it was intended to be. God's revealed himself to this new humanity to represent all humanity. That's why he did it. That's why he chose this, this special people, Israel, in order to set things right between God and all the nations, the whole world, everybody, others. But the scriptures testify everywhere to Israel's reluctance to do this. I mean, it's like the story of the whole Old Testament is their reluctance to do this. And it was driven by their self-centeredness. They thought very highly of themselves over against the others. And they weren't exceptionally bad. They were just like the rest of us. In fact, there's nobody who's exceptionally bad. Nobody's, if, if someone appears to be exceptionally bad, it's just because they've been given different opportunities than the rest of us. Right? Uh, they weren't exceptionally bad. So this isn't just an uh, anti-Semitic thing, right? They're just like the rest of us. We're all selfish like this. We're not concerned about the others. We want to set ourselves over against them. So in a sense, actually, they do represent us pretty well. They're meant to be a representative nation, and they do represent us, but just not in a way that will actually help our situation with God, not in some way that will actually mediate and bring reconciliation to the world. When sinful people receive God's blessings, and Israel is a great demonstration of this throughout their history, when sinful people receive God's blessings being poured in them and upon them, Uh, we're prone to hoard that for ourselves. We grab it all up and we collect it and we consume it for ourselves. We're prone to think that we've somehow deserved God's favor, that we're in this position that we're in, receiving God's blessing, because look, it's me. It's us. We deserve this, don't we? must be something special and unique about us. We're we're prone to think that, that we're uniquely privileged because of who we are. We love ourselves, and we contort God's love for us when it it comes to us. It does come to us, and we contort it to make it all about us, to make it another tool in my uh, my tool shed, I guess is how the analogy goes, (laughs) to make it another tool that's accessible to me to advance and exalt myself. That's what God's love does. That's what, that's what we've contorted his love into. But, but his love for his people, his love for his people was always meant to propel them outward to be good for other people. That's what it was always meant to be, to make them conduits of his love and conduits of his grace to others, not just to receive his love and grace for themselves, but to share it with others. 
He blesses his people in order to make them a blessing to the nations, to cause them to live for other people with a self-giving love which is like his love. Which would mean new life for the whole world in relationship with God if they would do it, right? That was, that was what God's new humanity, Israel, was meant for. That's what they were meant for, but that was precisely what they had rejected because they were selfish. And then... Jesus rolls out onto the stage. All eyes are on him, and the Gentiles start coming. The others start coming. The Greeks, again, that's that generic term for uh, Gentiles, non-Jews, those others. They're, they're probably God-fearers, right? They're, uh, they're among those who've come up to the city for worship at this feast. They're non-Israelite people like Rahab or like Ruth, we read about them in the Old Testament, non-Jews who have been attracted to Israel's God, Israel's religion. They're attracted. They see something in it. They're compelled. They've come to Jerusalem for this festival to worship. And some of these, some of these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. And that's mentioned because Bethsaida, that's out there, that's the borderlands, right? That's predominantly Gentile country. And, uh, and some of these Greeks come to Philip maybe thinking they could get a sympathetic hearing from him because not only is he from Bethsaida, his name's Philip, which is a Greek name. And there's only two disciples who have Greek names. They're Jews, um, but they have Greek names, and that's Philip and Andrew. It's the one that he goes to. These two disciples with Greek names, it's, uh, they're very cosmopolitan. Right? They're like Daniel, who allowed himself to be renamed after the false gods of the people who oppressed Israel. <clears throat> and together, Philip and Andrew relayed the message, the nations have come, the nations, the others, others are here, and they want to see Jesus. So Jesus answered them, the hours come. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. Now is the time to see God restore the world through his new humanity, through his true humanity. The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The page has been turned, and now we're reading the book of glory. Now we're seeing the wonder of the new humanity bringing divine reconciliation to the whole world, just like God intended from the beginning for his new humanity, for Israel. Now it's going to happen. The true Israel has come. The new humanity has come, and now it's time. Now we're seeing God's chosen one, the descendant of Abraham, who actually is the conduit of God's grace. He actually has been blessed in order to extend this blessing to other people. He actually does have a self-giving love that truly reflects the divine love. And that means pouring out his life to death on their behalf to make people right with God, to atone for their selfishness and fix that problem. The hour of his glory would be the hour that he pours out his life even to death. So Rodney Whitaker is a commentator on John's gospel. He says that, it may seem strange to refer to Jesus' death as glorification, 
But the death is at the heart of the Son's revelation of the Father. For God is love, and love is the laying down of one's life. So in the cross, the heart of God is revealed most clearly. Selflessness and humble self-sacrifice are seen to be divine attributes. God's own life is a life of love that denies self for the sake of the beloved, and therefore, such love is the very nature of life itself, real life. The cross is not just a one-time event that atones for sin, though it certainly is that. It is the most dramatic case in point of the pattern of divine life that exists for all time. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's how the love of God works. That's how the love of God has always worked. That reveals something about who God is and what he wants for people like us. He gives himself utterly to the other. That's what it means for God to love, like a a grain, a seed, falling into the ground and dying so that it bears much fruit. He, He spends himself utterly for others. That's who God is. That's what it means for God to be God, the triune God. The triune God exists as persons living by giving themselves to each other, perpetually, delightedly, eternally. That's what it means, the Father and Son giving themselves to each other in the person of the Holy Spirit forever. That's the glory of God. That's that's what God's love means. And that's why God created us, so that he could give himself to us in love. And that's why God created us in his image to be like him so that we might give ourselves back to him and that we might give ourselves to each other. And that is how God came into the world to save us from our self-love by giving himself to us and for us even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus brought God's vision for his new humanity to fruition. This is what humanity is always meant to be. This is what his special chosen humanity was meant to be in order to fix what went wrong with us. And Jesus did it, not by exalting himself over and against others, not by crushing all his opposition, but by laying down his life for people who did not deserve it, who could never deserve it. That's what Jesus did, and that's how he fixed our humanity. So the hour of his death, it really was the hour of his glory. Leslie Newbegin says that, The gospel is that there's a unique, decisive, and final action in which the one through whom all things were made and who is the source of life surrendered his life, not of natural necessity, but of freely willed and loving obedience. And in that act, the glory which is the flaming heart of the universe is revealed. Because of this act, The pattern of living through dying is no longer a necessity imposed by nature. It is a freely willed response to the love of God. So Jesus has done something unique. He's done something absolutely unique. He's fixed our humanity in himself. He's the only one who truly loves like God loves. 
and poured out his life for other people. He's done something unique, and now, now there's a new humanity because of Jesus Christ, a new humanity that includes more people than Jesus. We are called to be more than mere spectators of his new humanity, <clears throat> to say, that's nice, well done, Jesus. We're called to be more than just observers or spectators of the unique thing that he has done in restoring our humanity. We're called to participate in his new humanity in the church. We're granted the blessing and the privilege to love actually as Jesus loves. To reveal, as Newbegin said, the flaming heart of the universe in our love, by our response to God's love for us through Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus moves seamlessly. This may be confusing for us as we're first reading it, but this is why he moves seamlessly into discussion about discipleship. He's talking about the hour of his death, the hour of his glorification, the nature of true love, and what it means to follow him. He moves seamlessly through there. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. That, that word in Greek is an interesting word, I think, <clears throat> uh, loses, because it also means destroys. And I always scratched my head when I first took Greek. I'm like, how can a word mean lose and destroy? Those things seem pretty different. But here, I think it's helpful for us to, to think about it. Actually, um, maybe it should have been translated destroys. Whoever loves his life destroys it. And whoever hates his life in this world, and that's relatively speaking, not that you look at your life and say, I hate this and I wish I didn't have it. It's, uh, it's relatively speaking. It's um, you love uh, others more than you love yourself, right? Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So you destroy your life when you're living for yourself. You look out for number one, and you've lost it. You've destroyed it. You're ruining your life when you are self-centered. Alternatively now, because of Jesus, you live as a member of the new humanity, and you participate in Jesus' everlasting life when you love others, when you serve them in his name when you give yourself and spend your life, and some might even say waste it for other people. And that, in itself, this participation in the new humanity, this participation in the life, the eternal life that's in Jesus, in Jesus' own life, that in itself is the great reward of following Jesus. Living with him, participating in his life, receiving the honor that's due to him, for who he is, and receiving that honor from the Father ourselves. Having his life, having his love flow through you like fountains of living waters because his spirit dwells in you, making you new. That's the reward in itself. Those who serve, those who lay down their lives for others like Jesus are awake to life, to real life. They're awake to the divine life of God in the new humanity. William Temple said, uh, and this is a familiar quote, maybe, um, 
said that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. I mean, that kind of selflessness might not be our constant practice. That might not be what people say about us all the time. Well, we, we might not say that about ourselves all the time. We complain that the church isn't doing what it's supposed to do in the world. That's, that's true, right? But, but it is the reason and foundation for our existence, that we don't exist for ourselves. We exist for the benefit of those who are not like us. They're not with us yet. They're not one of us. They're others. And we exist for them. That's the reason and foundation for our existence, and that is true because our God's life in and of himself, our God's life means living for others. It's because he is who he is, the triune God living for others, each person living for the other, that we are who we are, and we're a group, we're this new humanity in the image of Christ living for other people. Leslie Newbegin again said, it's a life which is not guarded and preserved, but forever thrown away. Yet it is a life which is constantly received as a fresh gift from the source of all life. You throw it away all you want, you'll never lose it. It'll never end. The church doesn't exist as a selfish team competing for glory among all the other religious groups in the world. The church has been formed once and for all by the glory of God, and we've got the glory of love. We've got it in spades, just ready to pour it out on any unsuspecting person. Look, there's a bunch of kids in the room. Let's pour it out on them. Let's call them to join us in pouring out our lives for others around us. It'll be glorious, even if it hurts. The church isn't tribalistic. The church isn't nationalistic. I mean, there's ways in which we've actually done this right over the centuries, right? We learn new languages. We uproot our lives. We move to foreign lands. We say goodbye to our families, never to see them again. To spend ourselves for the sake of others hearing the gospel. The Savior was greatly anticipated, and the whole cosmos has seen the, the, the hour of his coming. Because one man died, the new humanity is here, living with God's own life. That's us. We're living with God's own life, and you're invited to participate. So is everybody else. Let me close with a quote uh, that I picked up from Miranda this week on Facebook from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. This is how he closes his book. <clears throat> Give up yourself, and you'll find your real self. Lose your life, and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in.
Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, what you have done in the gospel with your son is absolutely unique. And he is the new measure, the new standard of humanity. He is the true humanity, refashioned in your image because he's your son. And that means love, and that means humility, and that means sacrifice. And uh, we look to him and we say, that is good. We want him, and we want to be like him, and we want to participate in his life. We want to live with you and for you in this world. And so we pray that you would make the gospel real to us, make the uniqueness of Christ's humanity real to us, make it a reality in our own lives, little by little reshaping us into the image of your Son. Make us like him. Make us people who are willing and ready to live for you and even to die for you, to, to waste our lives for the sake of other people coming into relationship with you, because that really is good. And so we will live forever with you as we participate in the life of your Son. We thank you for his sacrifice. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.